0: You know, we just came out of a five week series that was sort of a gauntlet on the life of our church. And every talk just had to be uh, so dense because they're the very convictions that we share in together as a church. And I'm not going to lie, it took a lot out of me. And I, I feel like for a lot of us, it was a lot to take in mentally, but also to apply our hearts to. And, and we're getting all those processes ready for church membership and, and a better way to onboard people in the life of this church. But I just felt. Uh, compelled by God to spend the next few weeks in a few passages of Scripture that will be way more—I um, would say it's—it's it's more of a moment than it is a sermon. All I really want to do is tell you what God laid on my heart from a passage of Scripture today and set up a moment between you and God. So my goal is—is is not to go long. And not to offer the most loud, charismatic plea in the world for us to encounter more of God. I just want to set the table between you and God and then get out of the way. Does that sound good? You bring your Bible today. All of our locations. If you have your Bible, hold it up. Hold it up on the Sunday before Valentine's Day. (laughs) Hold it up. Y'all, I did the Bible drill at this church I was preaching at in Atlanta this week. And it was like a ministry for young adults, 20-somethings. Almost all of them are single. You would have thought... I threatened to kill their dog. Like they looked at me like they were like, what are you doing? This is horrible, hold it up. Keep it up if you're single, keep it up. We got a big week this week, keep it up, just kidding. Turn with me to Psalm 24, Psalm 24. The Psalms are in the very middle of your Bible. So easy to find, it is the song book of the scriptures and we're gonna read a Psalm of David. And I don't normally do this. I'm fine with us just holding up our Bibles every week. But for the next couple of weeks, maybe we're going to do something a little different. Let's all stand for the reading of the Word of God. Sound good? To a few of you, it sounds good. The rest of you are like, we were just standing. It won't be long. Only 10 verses. Uh, David wrote a lot of the Psalms, and a lot of them were written about specific moments in his life. Before I tell you what this moment was, let's just read it and receive it from the Lord. Look at somebody next to you say, I'm so glad I get to stand next to you at church. I'm so glad. Let's make sure y'all are together in this. Okay, Psalm 24 verse one, here we go. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? who may stand in his holy place, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God, their savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates." Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he? The king of glory, the Lord Almighty. He is the king of glory. You may be seated. The title of this mini-message this morning Straight out of verse three of Psalm 24 is called, Who May Ascend? Who May Ascend? Psalm 24 is the song David wrote for his triumphant entry into Jerusalem with the Ark of the Covenant of God. So if you don't know anything about Old Testament history, there was this thing called the Ark of the Covenant that was carried on four poles. Think like golden relics and things from the days of Moses, things that would be considered holy and sacred to the people of God. But it wasn't like an idol built to their God. It was representative of the presence and blessing of God, Yahweh, over his people, Israel. And David had been waiting a long time for his crowning moment as king. In fact, there was a long gap between the moment David was anointed as king as a young boy. You know the story. Daniel pours oil on his head instead of his seven older brothers, and they despise him for it. But at a young age, this shepherd boy, a man after God's own heart, is raised up to be the future king of Israel. But there's a gap sometimes between the anointing of God and the appointing of God. And the appointing happens when David's authority is fully established. Well, guess what? That has finally happened by the time this Psalm is written, and Psalm 24 was put together by David for the occasion of him entering into Jerusalem with the Ark of the Covenant of God for the first time as Israel's king, unrivaled, no more Saul, no more competition for the throne, no more overly paranoid king. Here comes the king of glory, King David. And David's so amazing that he just writes songs for moments in his life. David is that annoying guy who's, like, good at hunting and music and sports. He's like, there, there is no weakness with King David. Like, it, usually you get one or the other. Like, if you're musically talented, you usually look foolish trying to shoot a basketball. Or, or if you're like me, you're, you're good at shooting a basketball, but you look foolish on a camping trip. And it's like, it's like you, get, you get some gifts over others. No, David got them all. He is that guy. And he's the guy who can actually pinpoint moments in his life that he writes songs over that the people of God are going to sing. And this is a song that is sung for his entry into Jerusalem. Let's read it with that context in mind. He starts it like this. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. What's he doing there? David is widening Israel's perspective beyond themselves to the whole world. See, those verses don't sound like a big deal to you because you have the whole Bible right in front of you. You're like, of course, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. He made it all. It's on the first page. But at the time David reigned, our God, Yahweh, was thought of to be one God among many gods, little g. So when David says the earth is the Lord's, that's a widened, more grand perspective than what they're used to. Because they're used to thinking uh, thinking of it like this. Israel is the Lord's and the people who live among this people group. But what David's doing is he's widening their perspective to see this, God is bigger than you think he is. Our God is doing more than you think he is. And he's the one who founded the earth on the seas. Read Genesis one, the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And so a major theme of Psalm 24 is the glory of God and a grand perspective of who God is. And in light of that, he asks this question in verse three, and this is where we're living. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. And then there's this phrase, it might be a footnote in your Bible or it might be right there. It's this phrase that we've talked about before, Selah. Selah is an obscure word a lot of competing definitions for what it actually means, but in its most simple form, it means stop. It means, hold on, hold on, hold on. You just read that, but did you really read that? You just sang that, but did you really appreciate what you, there's a refrain there. There's a, hold up, let's make sure we fully grasp what just happened before we move on into this next set of thoughts. And so David asked the question, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord. In the Old Testament, God's residing place is in this location called Zion. And it's not like a literal physical place. It's more so thought of as the spiritual resonance of the presence of God. David is asking the question, who can go where God is? The God who made everything, the God who formed us, the God who owns everything. Who can ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who can go into his presence? And his answer is this, the one with clean hands and a pure heart. David is equating the blamelessness of a worshiper with the ability to access the presence of God. And he's not pointing to like moral perfection per se. He's not saying you got to be flawless to get where God is, but he's saying... If you're going to go and enter into the presence of God, you better come without guilt on your hands or blood on your hands. And you better come without a guilty conscience and a heart that has been purified for the presence of God. That's what he's saying. He's saying they will go and watch this. They will receive from the Lord vindication and blessing. That's interesting. Because usually if you're going into the presence of a God, you're going to give something. But apparently when you get into the presence of this God, It's not you that gives him anything, it's you that receives from him. They will receive vindication and blessing. But anyone in this room and anyone watching through a screen right now who's reading into what I'm saying at all with some level of self-awareness is not viewing Psalm 24 as the most happy, victorious song you've ever heard in your life. In fact, if you're anything like me, you're kind of panicking and going, okay, if this is what it takes to get where God is, I am in trouble. Because I'm the pastor of a church, and I can say if the qualifications to get in the presence of God are clean hands and a pure heart, I'm probably not going, and neither are you. Like, if you're just self aware to know your own spiritual poverty enough, you know when that question hits who may ascend? Who may go where God is? If the qualifications are the cleanliness of how I've treated people and the purity of my thoughts and motives and intentions, who may ascend? Not me. Uh, maybe you, and maybe you, may, maybe somebody else, but if we're just measuring this based on qualifications, you got to be feeling somewhat of attention in this Selah moment to go, okay, that's great that when they get there, they receive blessing and vindication, but who can go there if that's the requirement to actually get there? I got some blame on me. I got some impurity in me. I got some blood on my hands from the way I have treated people. There's a guilt that is intended for you to feel at this point in the song, because we are about to get to the chorus. Watch this, verse seven. He wants you to feel that tension, and then he says, lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. I studied the Psalms pretty briefly in seminary, took one class on, it was kind of an interesting class on on Hebrew and Greek idioms and just ways to understand what the Bible was communicating without just translating it explicitly, but knowing, hey, these are things to look for as you're reading the scriptures and as you're learning more about the original languages. And one of the most helpful things I got from being instructed on the Psalms is when you're reading a Psalm, you always want to look for repetition and rhythm because usually where you see repetition and rhythm, you're finding the chorus of the song and you're finding the author's intent in penning it. So you'll read this all throughout the Psalms when you're like, okay, he said that again and again and again, that's probably what he's trying to get across. And David is asking the same question repeatedly in this chorus and answering it the same way. The question is, who is the king of glory? And the answer is the Lord, strong and mighty, mighty in battle. And the purpose of acknowledging this is that we would lift up our heads and realize that worship for the king of glory is found when we take our eyes off of ourselves and put them on God. Now, everybody look up here. If I lost you in that explanation about the psalm at all, I want you to see this because this is so cool if you will see it in context. David wrote this song for his entrance into Jerusalem with the Ark of the Covenant of God. That event is covered in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And if you take yourself there in the moment, you can see beneath the spiritual veneer of what we assume is happening in Psalm 24 and realize that this is a power statement for David. David is entering in as king of Israel, long awaited king, by the way. You read 1 Samuel and you find out that David has been the most famous man in Israel for decades. When he killed Goliath as a shepherd boy, there was a song that broke out among the Israelites that goes like this. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. These people were waiting for this man to become king. He's about 30 years old at the time. He's been on the run. There was a competition for the throne, but now he is established. And now this is his crowning moment before his people that are longing for him to be king. And when he writes a song for this moment, he writes a song that asks a question about himself. See, when you read this, you think it has to be about God. No, it doesn't. David can write a song that goes like this. Who is this king of glory? David son of Jesse, he is the king of glory. But Psalm 24 is the ultimate ricochet in all of the Bible. David's going, who's the king of glory? Yahweh is the king of glory. The Lord strong and mighty in battle. This is an intentional getting out of the way From the new king of Israel in the ultimate moment where he could have taken credit, where he could have taken glory, where he could have made it all about himself, he's actually dipping out of the way and making sure the people know all the glory and all the attention and all of the affection needs to go to God. He is your king of glory. And I don't just say that because of the lyrics we're reading. I say that because of the actions David takes and the clothes he wears. This is such a strange moment. I want everybody to read 2 Samuel 6 at some point this week. But David intentionally took off his king robes and put on the clothes of a priest. He put on what was called an ephod, and it would be the equivalent of derobing publicly. And what they did is they took the Ark of the Covenant of God, and every six steps on the way into Jerusalem, they stopped and sang this song along with other songs To worship God. And it says, David danced before the Lord with all of his might. Six steps. Stop worship service again. Sing the song again. Sing it again. Who's the king of glory again? Not me. You see what I'm wearing. You see what I'm doing. I'm I'm, I'm more so a priest who's just come to point you where your attention belongs. Well, as David was doing this, not everyone liked it. In fact, one of his wives hated it. I'm not going to deal with the whole David had multiple wives thing. Gage is going to cover that next week. Um, He'll do a great job. But David had a wife named Michael who was a daughter of Saul. And it says, when she saw David dancing before the Lord with all of his might, she despised him in her heart. And then after David enters into Jerusalem, we get this glimpse in 2 Samuel 6. You don't got to turn there. I'm just going to read it to you where she shares privately with David why she was so disgusted with his behavior. Let me read 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 20 to you. It says, when David returned home, how many of you know your wife can be mad publicly, but everything goes bad when you return home to bless his household. Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. Going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. If you have ESV, that phrase, distinguished himself, is honored himself. She goes, how you honored yourself today. Dancing around for all the slave girls to watch you. At the time, David was about 30 years old. In his absolute physical peak, Scripture tells us that he was handsome. And she's blaming him going, you're just putting on a show and showing off so that everyone will look at you and laud you and think that you're amazing. Watch how David responds in verse 21. David said to Micah, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes, but by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. David goes, you you think I changed my clothes, and I'm dancing before the Lord with all of my might to show off for some slave girls? I'm not doing this as a show for them. I'm doing this to humiliate myself in the eyes of all people. And if you think that was humiliating, I will become even more undignified than this. I don't know if, if anyone else is in their 30s and grew up in church singing that song in youth group. I'll become even more undignified than nobody. Okay, just us. But David is like, no, 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 no. It is the exact opposite of what you are accusing me of. And to those slave girls who you think I was honoring myself in front of them, you you, you think that was humiliating for me? No, I'll be honored in their eyes because now they know that they have a king who's accessible even to the lowest of the low in this kingdom. David is taking the attention off of himself and putting it squarely, wholly, and completely on God. Now, everybody look up here and do not miss this. What you are witnessing in Psalm 24 and 2 Samuel chapter 6 is a microcosm of a grand narrative in the Scriptures. And the grand narrative is about the reciprocal relationship between humility and honor in the Bible the Bible Genesis to Revelation is trying to say something repeatedly over and over and over again through songs through narratives through poems through prophecies it is trying to say God opposes the proud but shows favor or gives grace to the humble there's an like a connected relationship between humility and honor in the scriptures and there's a connection between humility and honor in the eyes of God. If a human being tries to exalt himself, tries to exalt herself and achieve honor and status and acclaim and climb and arrive at more, that will undoubtedly always end in them being humbled and humiliated in their own eyes. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace and exalts the humble. Where human beings get out of God's way and, attention, and intentionally descend to the lowest possible place, that is when God bestows honor on them. And the ultimate example of this, Philippians chapter two, is Jesus himself. Why does this matter for you? Why am I trying to set up a moment between you and God based on Psalm 24 and 2 Samuel 6 today? Look up here, everybody watching online, do not miss what I'm about to say. I'm saying this because I'm speaking to thousands of people today who are tempted every day of their lives to fill an internal need for value and validation and approval by climbing certain ladders and accomplishing certain levels of status so that they feel full, but they actually end up more empty. You have a need as a sinful human being to be filled with approval. And it's actually not just because of your sin nature that you have that. It's actually created in the context of your relationship with God. But all of us, because of sin, are tempted to look to influence, riches, how many followers we have, the state of our relationships with the people who we deem the most important, the feedback of those who we are the most attracted to or we care about the most. We all want validation, value, approve of me, tell me that I'm worth something. Like the most arrogant person and the most insecure person have the same problem. It's called pride and what we want to do is we want to establish ourselves and we want to climb up and be seen and exalted that's a part of what it means to be a human being but what the scriptures teach is that the more you try to climb that mountain the more you try to gain their attention the more you try to earn that value the more empty you become and the more humiliated you really are but when you intentionally humble yourself before god and view his approval over your life as the source of your validation and of your value and of your worth, that's actually when you are the most fulfilled and loaded with joy and living in the knowledge of the reason why you exist. It's humility or honor. I try to climb, I end up empty. I bow low and I get full. The way up is down in the kingdom of God. So what are you saying today, Miles? I'm just answering a question today. And that question is this. Who may ascend? Who's going where God is? Remember our original question and our problem? I can't get there. I got to have clean hands and a pure heart. David's showing us a model who may ascend. Watch this. The one who descends to the feet of Jesus. That's who can go where God is. The way up is down. And when you bury yourself at the feet of Jesus and admit your own depravity and your own spiritual bankruptcy before a holy God, you don't walk away empty-handed. You walk away with your hands full of grace and mercy and forgiveness. You walked in humiliated. You leave honored and validated, but the pathway to getting honor from God in the kingdom of God is a pathway that goes downward in humble submission to the God of the universe. This is a gospel message. The way to be saved is by admitting that in and of yourself, you cannot be saved. I have to go to God with a heart that's aware of my own need, and that if it's up to me, I have nothing I will ever accomplish. Like, I believe people are going to come to know Jesus for the first time today because they're going to see who may ascend. I can't get up the mountain. Yeah, you can't get up the mountain. You're not supposed to go up there. You're supposed to go down before the one who came down the mountain for you. Came down. The creator of the world came down the mountain that was already ascended. Where did he come down from? The right hand of God. The position of highest value and authority. And who did he become? A servant. And he gave his life, Philippians 2. And was obedient to death, even death on a cross. So what? So God gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. You watch it? Jesus went down and up to the highest place. King David, you see this humility? You wanna know what God did for David in light of this kind of humility and being a man after his own heart, shepherd? He blessed David more than he blessed any other leader in the entire Old Testament. In fact, there's a moment where David's like, I'd like to build you a house, God. And God goes, yeah, you can't do that. You got too much blood on your hands. David was a warrior, he killed a lot of people. But your son will. But also, that's not it, David that's not it no i'm gonna bless you you're gonna have another son he's gonna sit on the throne of israel forever not just the throne of israel the throne of all the gentiles too he'll be called king of kings lord of lords that's what i'm gonna do for you david and your family the most high god in the flesh will be called the son of david and david's like if you read this story david's like you're gonna do that for me are you Are you serious? Yes, David. You want the blessing of God, but I'm I'm telling you, in the eyes of God, it does not come to those who try to prove anything. It comes to those who are humble enough to get out of God's way. And so I feel called by God to just set up a moment for you to humble yourself before God today. That's all we're doing. Whatever you got to do to humble yourself, if it's the confession of a sin... If it's the fact that there's been bitterness and tension in a relationship that you haven't brought to God at all, I don't know what it is, but I do know this. You can't leave here and work on your humility, y'all. If you leave here, humility is not a character trait for an elementary school that you put on the wall. Like, hey, last week we worked on responsibility. Next week we're working on dependability. But this week we're working on our humility, guys. It's not that. You can't become humble. That's called false humility, where you just make less of yourself to look humble. It's not real. Real humility is not a character trait you can develop. It is the byproduct of being in the presence of Jesus. You get with God, guess what you get? Humility. It's a byproduct. So if I want to walk away humble, how do I get there? You get at the feet of Jesus and you spend enough time with him and you're going to walk away thinking less of yourself. Oh, no, no, no. I don't mean thinking less of your value. That will go up. I mean thinking of you in the context of life less, and it'll be the most joyful version of yourself you've ever known. I gotta tell you, I've been following Jesus 21 years. My happiest version of my life is the one where I'm not thinking about miles. I cannot tell you how joyful I am to get in front of you and not care what you think. And it's it's not always true. Every Sunday, some Sundays I'm up here, I'm like, I don't know, I hope they like my jacket. Like, I, I, I don't know, I'm just, I'm so self-aware about stuff. But when I'm up here, and the only thing I care about in the world It's getting out of God's way. It's setting you up for a moment with God. All of a sudden, I'm joyful. Why is that? Because there's freedom in self-forgetfulness. So forget yourself for a second. You can get your elements out for communion. If you didn't get one, you can raise your hand right where you're at. Our team will find you. Some of you need to say yes to a relationship with Jesus for the first time, but honestly, this is just a moment between you and God. Band's gonna play. If you wanna turn this front area into an altar, We can do that. If you wanna bow right where you are, if you just need to sit and reflect for a while, whatever it looks like for you to humble yourself before God. As you take communion, here's what I want you reflecting on. Humility and honor. They are the beams of the cross. Jesus spreads his arms in humility. God exalts him with the name above every name. Every time you see a cross, I want you thinking Psalm 24, 2 Samuel 6. Where I humble myself, God exalts. Let's take a time, just let's see what God does. Humble yourself before the Lord and then we'll sing in a couple of minutes. Let's take communion and then we'll come right back.